think if you start to go down that rabbit hole of, okay, I want to learn about money, it's very easy to all of a sudden run into stuff where you're like, oh my gosh, this is so overwhelming. I can never learn this. And then you just shut down. Or I think for women in particular, we, a lot of us carry around this narrative of I'm bad at money, or I don't know a lot about finance. And some of that is really baked into society. We have created a system in which women are charged with and allowed to make what I would call the small finance or low finance decisions. You know, women make a vast majority of household purchasing decisions, things like groceries and what you're going to buy at Target or the drugstore, things for kids, stuff like that. But men have been the ones who've traditionally been talked to about high finance, again in air quotes, of the things like investing or taking out a mortgage, doing the things that feel like you need to learn a bit more. And that's not by accident. I mean, that is definitely a sign and symptom of a patriarchal financial system. And I think a lot of women who are married to men have had the experience of talking to a financial advisor or talking to a mortgage loan officer or an insurance agent or something, and to have that person address the man. That was Tanya Hester, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 190. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. Today marks our final episode of Money Month here at Real Talk Radio, which is a theme and topic that, to be honest, I'm already excited to dig into again in the future. We covered some great stuff, but of course, with a topic as big as this, there is always more that we can dig into. So if you would like a part two of Money Month, definitely let me know because I am already thinking about it. In today's episode, we are talking primarily about saving and investing, but before we get to that, I want to say a huge thank you to the 400 plus people in our Patreon community whose contributions of $1 or more per episode are literally what make this entire show possible. It's pretty rare to have a podcast that's 100% listener funded. There's no ads, there's no sponsors, and I'm really proud of the powerful little community that we've built, filled with people who believe, as I do, that honest conversations can change the world. With that in mind, there's so much that we can do together with this podcast in 2020. So many topics that I want us to dig into together, topics like family struggles, body image, chronic and invisible illness, that's actually our theme for next month, as well as pleasure, the pursuit of big goals and being really gritty, spirituality and ritual, boundaries, sex, dating, friendship, relationships of all kinds, social media, self-care, and more. But I need your help. If you love this show, if it makes you laugh, think, and feel less alone, will you join us over in our Patreon community? There are three different funding tiers that you can choose from, either $1, $2, or $4 per episode, which is just $3, $6, or $12 per month. This financial support is what allows me to keep making three new episodes per month for you, and it pays everyone involved in creating the show. That includes me, as well as my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. And higher rates are always paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. There are lots of fun bonuses that you get in the community as well. Exclusive content, first access to event tickets, some really good community conversations, and more. You can learn more about all that, and you can join us at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Tanya Hester. Tanya is the author of Work Optional, Retire Early, The Non-Penny-Pinching Way. 
She's also a former many things, a former political consultant, public radio journalist, yoga and spin teaching side hustler, civil servant, and even a former undersaver. Since retiring early at the age of 38, along with her husband, Mark, she devotes all of her time to fun and purpose, writing her award-winning financial independence blog, Our Next Life, recording her podcast, The Fairer Sense, gathering women together to talk about financial independence at Sense Positive Retreats, as well as volunteering in her community, traveling the world, skiing, hiking, biking, all of that good stuff. Basically, living her dream life, as she would say. In this episode, Tanya gives us an investing one-on-one crash course, including what she calls a sequence of saving to help us determine where to allocate our money between debt repayment, emergency funds, retirement savings, and more. She talks about some of the specific things that she did to help herself save more money, including the trick of hiding small amounts of her own money from herself to get the ball rolling on her savings without having to rely on willpower each month. We talk about larger money topics as well, disability economics, women's financial empowerment, socially responsible investing, and more. As someone who has become increasingly interested in, and I'd say quite passionate about personal finance over the past few years myself, I feel like I walked away from this conversation with some great next steps to take for sure, as well as topics to research and learn a bit more about, which is really all that I could ever ask from these conversations. And I hope that the same is true for you. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at realtalkradiopodcast.com. All right, we are good to go. Tanya, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm stoked to be here. As I was telling you before we started recording, I absolutely devoured your book over the past few days. That's basically what I have been doing with my life is working and reading your book, and it's already been really helpful. So thank you for all of the meticulous care that you obviously took in putting this together. Oh, you're so welcome. It makes me super happy to know that it uh, was helpful to you. Yeah, it is. I I feel like I've been taking a lot of notes while reading it. And so the first stage is just like, go through it. And now at the end, I'm like, okay, now I have to do something with all these notes. But it's a a good problem to have. (laughs) I think my very favorite thing, honestly, is when people send me a picture of the book with like a bunch of the corners bent down or a bunch of post-it notes in it. Like as an author, that is pretty much the best thing you can see is to know that someone has taken multiple things away from something you've created. So that's awesome. Yeah. So the title of the book, I wanted to ask you about the title's work optional. Will you share the story of how you chose that as the title? Like why that phrase work optional? So fun fact from behind the scenes in publishing, authors often do not choose the title of the book. And the truth is that this was not the the title that I wrote my last book proposal around. Uh, the proposal title was actually Beating the Game, which in hindsight, I'm really glad was not the title we went with. Uh, but I had work optional as one of the phrases in the subtitle of that that proposed thing. And that was what the publisher really latched onto and pulled out. And, and it's something where even though that wasn't my first choice, uh, I'm so glad that it happened that way because I really think the title work optional speaks so much more to my philosophy of what is possible in life that, you know, talking about something that's like beating the game. I'm so glad we didn't use that because it's a it's a weird sort of like screw everybody else. Let me get what's mine mentality, which is really not what I'm about. It's just what I think my agent and I thought would sell. Uh, But work optional is really like this is accessible to everybody on some level, even if 
full early retirement, for example, isn't in the cards for you, which I think in our society, we have to be real that we have way too much income and wealth inequality for something like full early retirement to be a reality for a lot of people. So work optional, I think, just kind of speaks to the greater range of options out there. And I'm so glad that that was like the happiest accident ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I really had to continue to tell myself to keep in mind, not just in reading your book, but I am just interested in personal finance in general and have gone sort of down the rabbit hole of researching, you know, the financial independence, early retirement, you know, like a lot of that kind of stuff. And sometimes, you know, the focus on, you know, here's the seemingly very large number that you need in order to like be set for retirement, whatever that looks like, feels super overwhelming to me, which I know we are going to talk about. And I had to keep reminding myself, like, while getting on this path and, you know, like, especially in, in reading your book and like knowing I was going to have this conversation, I have to remember like not to have things be so black and white in my mind, not like, oh, 100%, yes, I could definitely do this or, oh my God, this is too scary. This isn't for me to be like, is there a middle ground where I can learn these things and implement some of them? And the idea that like some is better than nothing. And it doesn't have to be this like 100% all or nothing kind of mindset. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. And I think that's really good that you're thinking about that because we have a society that really does not feel very comfortable with the word and. We really like the word or. And we like to look at people's after and not their before. I mean, I started out with a bunch of debt when I was in my early 20s. I didn't really get my financial act together until my late 20s and didn't start really saving until my early 30s. So I think we assume, like, because I have retired early, that I somehow have always had my financial shit together. And that, you know, that, that, like, I always made a bunch of money, which isn't true at all. You know, I came out of school making under $30,000 a year living in Washington, D.C., which is really expensive and had student debt and had credit card debt. And, you know, like, it, it is good to recognize that maybe some advice isn't appropriate for you right now, but you could take some piece of it that's useful to you and maybe at some point get to where you can implement the rest of it. And, you know, that multiple things can be true at once. You can be smart about your money and have systemic barriers up against you. Uh, so I really appreciate that you're you're exploring that middle ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would love to go back in time a little bit because I feel like a lot of what we're going to be talking about, it's like conceptual and then also kind of put against the backdrop of your own story, which I know that you have shared really honestly. And so I guess to like start to dig into that, I want to ask if you remember the first time that you realized that retiring earlier than, let's say, average was something that people were pursuing? Like, how did you kind of wake up to that or back into that? You know, because you, you just mentioned it wasn't something that you really even started thinking about until your early 30s. The interesting thing is I always thought about the concept because my dad was forced to quit working in his early 40s because of a disability. And we knew that I had a very good chance of having the same circumstances happen. We didn't actually understand all that was happening genetically. So I thought I might have this gene when it turned out I had it all along and it explained all this other stuff that was happening for me. So it turns out my dad and I have different manifestations of the same issues. So that was an interesting discovery. But because of that, seeing what happened to him, seeing how he was forced out of the system and didn't get to retire on his own terms, early retirement was always in my brain. It just wasn't something that seemed possible until my early 30s. And I was an anomaly in the so-called FIRE movement. I really hate that term, but it is what people use to talk about early retirement uh, in that I didn't discover the idea on blogs uh, or anything else. It was that 
my husband, Mark, and I came up with this idea and we said, like, could we actually make this happen? After we'd gotten better at saving, we had bought a condo in LA, which, you know, was a big deal to be able to save to do that. And we said, okay, if we keep using these skills, what could we accomplish? And we started running numbers and we went like, oh, we could actually save really quickly because at that point in our careers, we were earning quite a bit more than we started out at. And we later then discovered some books, some blogs and things like that, that validated the idea. Like, okay, this isn't crazy, but it was really our desire to escape really high stress careers. Like we both were political consultants and I traveled a ton. You know, my last few years of work, I flew over 120 flights a year and uh, I've flown almost a million miles, actually over a million miles if you count up different airlines, but I've flown a lot in my life. And so I was almost never home. We were constantly exhausted. It was taking a toll on our marriage. And we just said, we can't do this for 40 years or we won't even know each other. We'll be so unhealthy. How can we make this a shorter part of our life? And that's that's really where the idea came from. And then trying to figure out the money behind it came next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it started with sort of the what if, it sounds like. Like, hey, what if this was what we wanted to do? Like, how might that work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's true. And I think that's the best way to think about money, honestly. Trying to just save for the sake of saving can be so hard and so boring. But if you know what you're saving for, it feels so different. Mm-hmm. So do you remember what your first steps were after you kind of ran numbers and realized, okay, this thing that we're you know considering doing isn't completely impossible? Because I feel, and maybe I'm like putting my own stuff on you, <laughs> which like, of <laughs> course is possible, but that there's this moment of like, okay, you know, here's what it would entail to do that. And then just like, overwhelm, right? Like, I I guess like what I'm asking is like the potential overwhelm of a big goal, especially a big financial goal that can feel totally impossible at first, whether that goal is like getting out of debt or, you know, saving for retirement or saving for a house or like anything, you know, that someone might be thinking about. I'm interested in sort of what the reckoning process was like for you with that, if that even was something for you. And maybe if you could share like how you were able to break that seemingly huge goal down into like different phases. Yeah, I think it's helpful to take a big, big step back and go to way earlier in my adult life, because this is a question that I get a lot of the like, how did you make it work to retire early? And, oh, you saved in only six years. What did that look like? And it's like, well, this was just the next step in a continual leveling up process for us. So in my early 20s, I I graduated college with credit card debt because I went to college in the Bay Area. It was really expensive. I had a full ride scholarship, which was amazing, but yet I still needed some student loan money to buy groceries and things like that. Uh, And I probably also made some very dumb spending decisions. Let's be real about that. But so I had this debt that was weighing on me. I was earning very little. I lived in DC and then a few years later moved to LA. So both really expensive places. When I moved to LA, I had to buy a car. So now I had car debt. And I felt really weighed down by that. But then I couldn't get myself to actually save money or to do more than the minimum payments on my debt. And so one day, our HR came to us in the company and said, we're doing a new payroll system. Everybody has to do new paperwork to get your direct deposit. And when I looked at the form, it said, it had space for multiple accounts that you could have on there so that you could potentially split your paycheck. And I thought, hmm, what if I put $50 of every paycheck into savings? So $100 a month. And 
I just did it. It was a spur of the moment decision. And then I didn't really think about it again. And sure, when my next paycheck came, it was $50 lower, but I was earning enough that $50 wasn't like make it or break it for me. That was sort of in the slush fund category. And so I just adjusted, you know, I figured out how to live without that 50 bucks. And then a few months later, I totally forgot about it. Just was like a normal thing. I'm going on living my life, getting my paychecks. But then I looked at my savings account and realized, oh, wow, there are a few hundred dollars in there, which is not a lot of money, but it was more than I had ever saved up to that point in my life. And it was really the light bulb moment for me of like, this is for me how I have to do this. I am not a willpower person. I'm not a disciplined person. Uh, I, in fact, taught fitness for 10 years so that I'd be forced to work out because I won't go to the gym on my own otherwise. Um, so for me, creating systems that take the willpower out of it is really important. And that was really the beginning of it. So from that point on, then every time I get a raise, I would try to raise that number up of what was automatically getting hidden from me. I call it hiding money from myself. And that was how I paid off my car loan, my student loan, my credit card debt. And then as soon as that stuff was taken care of, at that point, I was beginning to combine finances with my then husband, Mark. And we just started leveling that up. So we'd use that to save for the condo we bought in LA. We used it to save for the house we eventually bought in Tahoe, where we now live. And so by the time we were at this decision point of, oh, hey, let's pursue early retirement, we had already been hiding money in various ways. You know, we had upped our retirement contributions at work. We had, you know, done a lot of things to try to get better at this savings thing. So for us, it wasn't like starting from scratch of, oh, we're not saving anything and now we're going to save a bunch. It was, we're saving a bit. How can we save a lot? And so the first thing we did then was say, okay, we pay our mortgage payment on the first of the month. Let's use the second paycheck of the month to do something equivalent. And so we started then doing automatic investing for the second paychecks. And we would just have money come out and go into our investment accounts right on payday. So we never saw that money. And honestly, I think that is the very best financial tip I can offer to anyone is if you can structure your money in ways that there is some part of what you earn that you never see, and it just goes straight somewhere else, you won't miss it. It is it is honestly the best way to save. And that is the strategy we used all the way to the end. We just kept increasing the amounts that were automatically getting hidden from us. And then it just felt like magic. It felt like we were saving by magic. But to make a very long story short, it was a continual process of trying to build on savings rather than going from financial novices to financial, you know, grad students overnight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate what's like a seemingly obvious reminder that things take time, right? And there isn't necessarily some like you know, mystical, magical solution. It's like you figure out what works for you. Like you said, hiding money from yourself. I feel like that's like such an awesome tip, especially because, you know, if all we're doing is like relying on willpower for, you know, money or anything else, like that gets exhausted really quickly. And so to say like, hey, I'm someone who like needs this to come out up front and then to set up like systems that are going to support what you know to be true about yourself. Like I can definitely see how that would work. And the idea that it's not like you were 32 and woke up and were like, huh, early retirement. I think that I'm going to do that, right? And then just like did it in six years, not to say that couldn't be somebody's story, but I just appreciate the reminder that this in certain ways was like something that you were like habits you were building and things you were working on. It's like, you know, if I'm trying to, you know, drink more water, or, you know, eat more vegetables or do something like that. It's like not just, oh, I have one salad and then I'm done. <laughs> it's like something you have to keep doing. Yeah. And I suspect that everyone listening to this is already parceling out their willpower in various ways. It takes willpower to think about 
getting exercise. Maybe folks are, yeah, like you said, thinking about drinking water, eating salad, eating vegetables, eating healthy. That's stuff that you you have to make that decision every day. You can't automate that the same way. You can do things to make those decisions easier to make. You can go to bed in your gym clothes. You can fill your fridge with veggies, but you can't avoid having to spend willpower on that stuff, but you can avoid having to use willpower on money. And so my view is save the willpower for the stuff where you can't avoid it and make money as automated and automatic as possible so that it's just sort of saving in the background or that you're you're building up a fund that you can use to pay down your debt. You know, wherever you are in the journey, the hiding and taking willpower out of it can absolutely work for you. This is kind of a like a broad, vague question, but why do you think that even like the term investing is so scary for so many people? Oh, I think investing has so long been framed as something that rich people do. And a lot of places literally still make it that way. You often have to start with $5,000 to open an investment account. And that's just not possible for a lot of people. And so that automatically signals to them, hey, this is not for you. It also comes with a lot of mystique and the idea that you need to know a lot, which is not actually true at all, but that is what the financial services industry tells us so that we will hire them and pay them more to hold on to our money for us. And I think it's all that stuff. Plus, you add in then Gen X and millennials and Gen Z in particular really have strong values and strong beliefs about what's important in the world. And I think we have this idea that most investments fuel evil, you know, to put it really bluntly, that like if you're investing, you're probably investing in tobacco or guns or petrochemicals, oil, things that we don't necessarily want our money to be funding. And that's, I think, a big hurdle too is how do I – invest and help my money grow, but without fueling the bad guys? I think that's a very legitimate question. And it's not one where the answer is always easy to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that I would definitely love to talk about a little bit later, too, especially like how you're thinking about that, you know, now. But going back to this like super, super beginner stage, right? Like, let's say, and, and maybe this was, I guess I should just ask you a more personal question. Like at the beginning when you were, you know, having the $50 taken out of the paycheck and it sounds like maybe at first using that to pay down debt, but, you know, once you got to the stage where it was being invested in some way, was that something that you feel like you, you, you knew what to do or where did that education piece come in for you of like, okay, I want to invest this money, you know, shrug emoji, now what? <laughs> So I actually started investing very similarly to how I started saving. I was really fortunate that the bank that I use, which is USAA, which is available to folks who are military. Um, My dad was military, which is how I got it. And they have both a bank and an investment arm. And so you can do both through them. And they have a system where if you set up automatic transfers or automatic investments, you can do it for much less. So I I think it was something like $25 a month that I was investing. So pretty small, certainly much less than the $5,000 minimum I would have had to do if I just did a one-time investment. And a lot of investment banks are offering this now. Like if you set up automatic investing, they bring the the floor much, much lower for you. But it's so funny because now as a person who knows a lot more about investing, I laugh at my first choice, but it was it was 
made out of fear, honestly, of losing the money. And so I started investing, but I invested in a bond fund. And so for those who are not familiar with investing, you have stocks, which are shares of companies. Essentially, you have an ownership stake and then debt or bonds rather are debt. It's uh, a city wants to put in a new park and they sell bonds and then they repay you over time. And so owning a bond fund is much more conservative because you you're much less likely to lose any money, but you also make much, much less on it. So it's considered to be a really conservative investment. And so I, I started investing in that. And it's true that I didn't make much money uh, at all. I didn't lose my money, which felt really good to me. But I was investing during years when it could have grown a lot more if I had invested in a stock fund instead. But to me, I you know, I could look back at that and punch myself and say like, oh, it sucks. I was so conservative and missed out on growth. But to me, it was a really important part of the learning process of just getting comfortable with investing without being afraid of losing money was what I needed at that point in my life. And so I did investing the wimpiest way possible, but it still set me up to get where I am now. And so I think that's totally okay. If you want to start out investing in bond funds, like go for it. That might be the set of training wheels that you need. Mm-hmm. I'm interested. You mentioned training wheels, right? So if we look at the your financial journey as, you know, I guess like eventually you take the training wheels off and then you like level up and you level up. So if the first thing that you did was invest in bonds through, you know, like that bank that you already had access to, will you talk a little bit about some of the different phases of like what came next for you? For sure. And I will say also, I don't think you ever have to take the training wheels off. (laughs) I think having something in your plan that always feels like training wheels or at least a safety net is a really, really good thing. And for a lot of us, especially those of us who have fear around money or didn't grow up with much of it or just, you know, are always thinking about, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen? Having a safety net is really good for you. So for me, I started out focusing on paying off that debt. I started investing a little bit more in that bond fund, but not a ton. Uh, And then after the debt was gone, I really focused on building up an emergency fund. And so at one point, this is one thing where I will share numbers. At one point, I had (laughs) $40,000 in an emergency fund, which sounds like a huge amount of money because it is. It's really unnecessary for an emergency fund. But I took Susie Orman's advice at the time to heart, which was save $8,000 or not $8,000, save eight months of your highest possible expenses in your emergency fund. We were not spending $5,000 a month, but we could potentially have. And so I thought, okay, what's the most we could spend in a month? How could we get eight months of that? And and we held that in cash for a really long time. A lot of folks who are pro-investments would say we were very, very stupid for that, but that's what I needed for my peace of mind. And then from there, we started saving up more to buy our first place in LA and then our, our later home in Tahoe. And then we started focusing more on upping our retirement investments at work because those are tax advantaged and, and reduce your taxes, which is really good, especially if you start to earn more and your tax rate goes up. And then we focused on just regular investments that we could access that now fund our early retirement. But if you kind of look at the whole journey, it was one little addition at a time. It was never saying, okay, I'm going to go from knowing nothing to having all these different investments and savings vehicles. And now we don't keep nearly that big an emergency fund because we know we don't need it. But, uh, you know, that that was what I needed to have peace of mind to feel like, okay, I'm I'm okay now starting to invest more aggressively because I know I have this huge safety net where if both Mark and I were out of work, we could be okay for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I've been trying to like really get specific with myself about, you know, uh, 
what things have felt scary for me and talking to, you know, like friends in my life and, you know, people in the Patreon community and just like really trying to understand like, what is at the root of a lot of these fears, right? That we have when it comes to like money or savings or investment. And I feel like the, the couple of themes that have come up are like a fear of doing it wrong, right? That like, someone out there knows way better than me and I'm taking this action and it's not the best possible action. And like, therefore I'm, you know, I'm going to do it wrong and that's going to mean I lose all my money. Right. Or that's going to mean I run out of money when I'm, you know, X age or whatever. And this, this fear of like doing it wrong and losing all the money, I feel like is what so much of this stuff comes back to. Absolutely. And I think for someone like me, I am not a natural saver. I'm definitely a spender. And so I think it's both that fear of doing it wrong coupled with not trusting myself to do the right thing. And that I think is a scary place to be, but I think it's something that a lot of us can relate to. And that was why I found all the automating so helpful because I got in the habit of just checking my checking account and I knew, okay, I have to get to this paycheck or this payday with money left. And if there wasn't money there, you know, that it was easier for me not to spend than it was when I was using all credit cards or when we didn't hide all the money. So it really is figuring out what works for you. But I think it's okay. You know, we have this idea that we're always supposed to be getting better. We're supposed to be improving ourselves. We're supposed to be getting rid of our worst habits. I actually disagree with that. You know, it's not to say we shouldn't strive to be better people. We absolutely should. But I think it's far more helpful and productive in your life to accept who you are. And for me to say, I'm bad at budgeting. I'm bad at willpower. And instead to just build systems that account for that and saying, you know, I'm fearful about money. So when people tell me it wasn't the optimal choice to pay off our house, we should have instead invested that money to say, you know what, maybe that was right for you. But for me, the right thing was to be able to sleep at night. And that means knowing that no one can take my house away. So making choices, even from your own worst tendencies, I think is okay if it's aiming toward putting you in a better place. That maybe wasn't an answer to your question, but I just feel really strongly about that. Yeah. I mean, uh, with Sarah Lee Kane a couple episodes ago, we talked about this idea of like money and safety, right? And that what makes one person feel safe might be really different from what makes somebody else feel safe. And even if it's seemingly illogical, right, that it, it is worth looking at that. And to your point, kind of like honoring what's true for you. And I can certainly relate to the, you know, having way too much in an emergency fund. It's actually something my like brave step for 2020 is to take some of the money unnecessarily in the emergency fund and invest it because I, I just don't need that much cash sitting there. But it took having that much cash sitting there for a while to kind of get comfortable with, okay, maybe I don't need a full year's worth of expenses and instead I'm going to keep six months worth of expenses or whatever. And there's no necessarily like unequivocal right or wrong answer, but it's, you know, I have to be honest about what makes me feel comfortable and what made me feel comfortable you know, a, a year ago when I was getting divorced and having big change in my, you know, living situation and was, I, I needed the security of like having more money on hand and I don't really feel that way anymore. And that's okay. I couldn't agree more with all of that. And I think most financial advice ignores the fact that a lot of times we have to work up to things, both in terms of our actual financial knowledge. And just like you said, our emotions and our fear and our comfort level holding on to that cash for so long was clearly what you needed. And there's no shame in that, especially because you're now taking another look at it. We we do need to be willing to evolve and say, okay, am I at a point now where I can make a different choice? But, you know, starting out with a more conservative financial position is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the exercises um, 
in your book is this idea of writing like a mission statement for your money. Will you talk us through that that process a bit? Yeah. So there are a few things that go into this. I'm a big believer that, especially for those of us who aren't natural savers, some people are naturally frugal and love saving money and great, more power to you. I'm totally jealous of you if, that, if that's you uh, because I can't do that. So the reality is though, like none of us can avoid interacting with money. If something is bad for you, you can say, like, I'm not going to be around that. But like, if you have a problematic relationship to money, you still have to deal with it all the time. You still have to go buy groceries. And you know, if impulse purchases are a problem for you, you're going to be faced with that every time. And so the idea with the money mission statement was to really spend some time thinking about your values and more importantly, what you value. So what are the things in your life that actually make you happier or that make life better for you? To focus on those things and then to say, okay, what's all the spending that I do that doesn't align to that? And to try to actually formalize this. I'm a big believer in the idea of thinking about how you define yourself. Uh, I recently heard James Clear talking about his book, Atomic Habits, and he said something very similar. So, hey, James and I are on the same wavelength. But the idea of saying, I am the type of person who blank and defining that for yourself is a big part of the mission statement idea. So a good analogy for me uh, for this is the idea of if you're a vegetarian, if someone says to you, hey, do you want a burger? You don't sit and think about that. You automatically say, nope, I don't eat burgers. I'm a vegetarian. It's like, how can we make some money choices that are similar of someone saying, hey, do you want to go to Target? Like for me, I had to accept, nope, I'm not allowed to go to Target because Target is a big spending trigger for me. It's so wonderful and they have so many beautiful things. I just can't handle the temptation. So I'm a person who doesn't go to Target. Uh, Things like that, knowing that about yourself and writing that down and and reminding yourself of it, I think can be really, really powerful. So for me, it's like I'm a person who values travel and will spend on travel, but I'm a person who doesn't value the latest electronic gadgets. So trying to formalize that I think is a really transformative thing to do. And especially if you can write it down and hang it up somewhere that you can see it so you're regularly reminded, you can remind yourself, I'm a person who does this or doesn't do this. To me, it just it can really fundamentally change your relationship to money, especially in regard to spending. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the specific example of realizing, hey, I can't go to Target anymore. <laughs> like that is not an option for me. Was there anything else specific after you started looking at money from a values perspective that you either started or stopped doing? You know, the thing honestly that that changed the most for me was having less shame around the spending that I did choose to do. We didn't really do any massive cuts. Like we didn't cut out whole categories of anything except that we started going out to restaurants a whole lot less. But it's not like we said we don't go out to eat. We just said we're going to make it more of an occasion instead of a several times a week thing as it had become when we lived in L.A. and it was really convenient and we're working long hours and we felt like this is the best way to eat dinner. Um But it was really releasing the shame of feeling like, oh, I shouldn't be spending this money on taking this trip and instead being able to say, no, this is what I value more than anything. And so this is exactly what I should be spending my money on. And that's not to say that I'm going to throw my money away staying at five-star hotels, but, you know, the flight, staying at reasonable hotels, spending on some meals and cultural events we might go see when we travel – I feel totally free doing that stuff now because I know that that is the thing that's right at the top of my mission statement. And so I think that's valuable too, even if it's not trimming back, if it's just giving yourself permission to not feel guilty, that has huge value. Yeah. Anything that we can do to release that like shame, you know, or like you said, guilt around stuff, because feeling that way, it's 
like certainly not helping. Oh, absolutely not. Shame is never helpful. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Obviously, easier said than done. But yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I appreciate you sharing that. I feel it's it's the money stuff. It's been like really interesting this month to have this be the theme because not only having these conversations about it, then I've been thinking about it more. I've been having more personal conversations about it. And just like it has been like the number one thing on my mind like this month has been money. And just seeing like so many of the common things that like we might think that we're alone are like really common that so many people are dealing with, right? Whether it's like struggles of sticking to a budget or like trying to get out of debt or, you know, another one that I've heard come up a lot. And I don't know if this was an experience that you had with your husband, but you know, when you are sharing finances with someone, what happens if you're not on the same page about some of this stuff? Yeah. And that has happened. You know, I think when, when Mark and I first got married, which was 11 years ago, we set our finances up. We went fully joint. So we combined everything, but we gave ourselves separate accounts and a monthly allowance because I felt at the time very judged. You know, if I bought a pair of shoes or something, <laughs> I felt like I had to justify it. And I don't think he felt the same way, but he also just wasn't as tempted by those things. Mark tends to buy like one or two big things a year, whereas I tend to buy more little things as as we go along. And so that was what we did for about two years until we got to a point where we said, you know what, we trust each other. We accept that, you know, if one of us buys something that there was a good reason for it, and if it's a bigger thing, we know we'll talk about it anyway, so we can stop doing that. But I think, again, that was a that was a step in the process we needed to go through to get to that place of, of trusting one another, and so that was really helpful. There have been times where we've been on what I might call like a – a different line of the same page. Like when we've when we've been really aggressively saving, we've kind of fluctuated in that one of us will want to be more frugal while the other is saying, well, let's spend a little more while we're still working and have this income so that we have the experience. And we kind of traded places on that. We were almost never both wanting to be super frugal at the same time or both wanting to be spendier at the same time. But because we knew what our vision was and we had done that values work first, it made it much easier to come back together. And that I think is super important. So all of the stuff that I talk about in the book about thinking about your ideal life and what you want to make time for every day and what your money mission statement is, if you're financially partnered with someone, I think it's really important to do that stuff together so that the vision is a shared one and not that you each have your own vision and you're working towards separate goals, but somehow using the same money to do that. I think that is a recipe for a lot of unhappiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. And not to say those conversations are always easy, but you know, like even having a framework to start talking about that kind of stuff. And if you are on the same page, I feel like it makes you know all of the action steps a lot easier. Mm-hmm. I feel one of the other things that's that's come up a lot from folks is this idea of like, I just want someone to tell me what to do. <laughs> and, and I think that goes along with like potentially the fear of doing it wrong, right? Or, you know, not necessarily even knowing where to go for information. And, you know, you provide so much of that in your book. Um, but I'm interested, particularly one of the things that you shared in the book that it's funny because I was reading it on my um Kindle. And as I was doing it, I'm like, oh, I need to get like the paperback version of this because I'm <laughs> like highlighting too many things that I can't as easily flip back to. But the part where you shared the sequence of saving flowchart, I mean, I, I just like highlighted the entire page and I'm like, okay, I think I need to have this in paperback. But I'm hoping that uh, if you feel up for it, you can talk about some of the nitty gritty of that type of stuff, you know, like for folks who are like, 
hey, I have debt and I also want to save and I'm thinking about retirement and like sort of all of these different buckets and are having the question of like, in what order do I do these things? Because I think that's a really common question as well. hundred percent. I think a lot of financial advice assumes that you're only doing one thing at a time, which is just not real life at all. And like you said, a lot of us are working to pay off debt or maybe you have different types of debt. Let's say you have a student loan and credit card debt and mortgage debt. Those are not the same things. And so thinking about them differently is really important. Same as thinking about saving for retirement, especially if you work for an employer that offers a 401k plan that with a match and you know, okay, I need to be contributing enough to get that match, but then I also have this debt. How do I think about that? So I offer this savings uh sequence to try to address some of that and help with that. I I think one of my core principles is I don't want to tell you exactly what to do. I want to give you a lot of information, make sure you know what your options are, and then you can make decisions for yourself. But I think when you're starting out and you really just want some of that guidance, I think it's really important to have this. So I recommend first that you save $2,000 in an emergency fund. Dave Ramsey recommends $1,000. That's what a lot of folks start out doing. And that's a great start, although I disagree with Dave on virtually everything. But (laughs) that as a first step is great. But I think if you can level that up to $2,000, that's much better. $1,000 could pay for a minor car repair, but things have gotten so much more expensive in the last few years. I mean, $2,000 won't cover a lot of people's rent. It won't cover, you know, there's just a ton of things that it won't cover. So you want to start a little higher. If you can even save $3,000, that's great. Then I recommend contributing enough to your 401k to get the full employer match. So if they will match 3%, then contribute that 3% or get as close to it as you can. Work up to that as you're able to. Next, I think building up your emergency fund to be bigger than that 2000 is really important so that you could be prepared for job loss, income loss, a big healthcare expense, a big you know car accident, something where you've got that cushion to not need to go further in debt to pay for it. And I recommend there that you go to six months of expenses. And if you have two incomes and very stable jobs, you can do three months of joint expenses because it's unlikely you'd both lose your job at the same time. Then next, I I recommend dedicating all additional money to paying off your high interest debt. So anything above seven or eight percent. That tends to be mostly credit card loans, but you might have some other uh, other debt that's out there. So student loans uh, that are under seven and eight percent, you wouldn't worry about yet at this step. Same with anything like extra card payments, extra mortgage payments. From there, that's where I recommend splitting it. So this is assuming that either you already have your emergency fund set or that you know, you're know you doing these things and building on them as you're able, but you're starting to split things. Use half of your extra funds to increase your 401k and IRA contributions and half for accelerated student and car debt payoff. Or if you're saving for a house or a condo, that you're devoting half to retirement accounts and half to down payment savings. It it goes on in multiple steps, but I think trying to help people see how you can both pay off debt and save at the same time and the best vehicles for doing that, I think is just something where there's a lot of mystery there and a lot of feeling of I'm doing it wrong or I don't know what to start with first, which I will say anytime you're paying off debt or saving, you are doing it right. And mm-hmm. the, the idea that you have to do it perfectly or in the most optimal way, I think is such a destructive idea. So if you're saving, if you're paying your, your debt down, good for you. Like keep going. If you can make it a little bit more optimal step by step, great. Uh, but what matters is that you're making progress, not that you're making progress in the most perfect way. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I think like we can't say that enough, right? Or like I can't hear that enough that it's like the thing that you will actually do in small amounts is going to be over time way more impactful than like the absolute perfect thing that you could execute one day. Oh, amen. Yeah. And I, you know, when you said like when uh, this sort of conundrum or puzzle of having like multiple financial priorities at the same time, like, okay, I want to pay off credit card debt and also, right, like put into a 401k and also this other thing. And that idea of like, well, I only have so much money. And if I don't have enough money to do all of those things, then I, I like, I appreciate your reminder too that it can be like a little bit here, a little bit here. Like, okay, I mean, I, I work for myself, so I don't have that 401k employer match, but I can see where the, if I can contribute enough to get that, maybe I can't max out the 401k, but like that's something, right? And then like the next money goes here and the next money goes here and having this like multi-pronged approach makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's it's really, you're, you're trying to build something with your finances and that is not gonna be a single thing. It's gonna be built of all these different choices. And so as you're able to earn more or spend less or in some way free up more money for purposes that are important to you, you can keep building on this. But yeah, it probably will have multiple factors or after you pay off some of that debt, maybe then that frees up more money to do something else. So it's just thinking about, you know, what is each step that I need to do? And that's where I think it's, that's how you get to big goals, frankly, is you don't get to a big goal by just being amazing at money or earning a ton of money. You get to big goals by focusing on the small steps one at a time. And if you can do that and trust that long-term that stuff will add up, it's amazing how far you can get, especially if you can get in the habit of not inflating your lifestyle, of keeping your spending level so that if you are able to increase your earnings, you can accelerate your progress each year. I mean, that's where the real magic happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and sort of this idea of going back to what you're saying of values, right? Like having a vision in your head, whether it's like for retirement or for something else, of like what you're saving for, because I have found in my life that it's a lot easier for me to save for a like relatively short or medium term goal, right? Like I really want to go on this trip or I'm someone who loves long distance hiking. So, okay, I want to go on this hike and this is how much money I need for that. It's like immediate enough. It's not like actually instant gratification, but it's something that's going to happen say within a year. I find it a lot easier to save for those things because they're like sexier almost. And like, I can envision them happening sooner versus the like seemingly like huge nebulous thing of like, maybe at some point I would retire and like this little drop in the bucket is going to go towards that, which kind of goes back to what you were saying about making sort of like a a good decision once and then automating it. So I'm not like continually forced to have to make these like unsexy decisions that like in the interim, I would rather put money towards something else. I think you said it perfectly. And I think you're not alone in that. It's, it's the same thing where like it feels much more doable to lose 10 pounds than it does to lose a hundred pounds. And we like small near-term goals a lot better than the long-term ones that feel like, you know, I don't even know if that day's ever going to come, but Yes, to your point, if you can just make the hard choice one time and set up your contributions to your 401k at work or set up a payroll transfer so part is going into savings, you just have to be brave for like five minutes. <laughs> then you can be unbrave all the rest of the time. But what matters is is that one time that you do it. Yeah, I love that so much. So uh, I guess we're kind of ping-ponging around in your like journey and life story a bunch, but you know you said it was in your early 30s that you and Mark Mark started to think, okay, like 
you know, we could actually retire earlier. That's something that we're interested in. I am curious what the process is like for you guys of deciding what enough looks like. And I think that, I mean, this has come up in all the conversations this month for a reason, right? This sort of idea of what is enough money, right? Like I think can really be overwhelming or can feel really daunting. And so what did you guys do to say, okay, here's how we're going to calculate what enough is for us? I think that is a really hard question, and I'm so glad that you have spoken to everyone about it. I heard you talk about it with my podcast co-host, Kara, a few months ago, and it's it's not an easy one. I don't want to sugarcoat this and say, like, oh, yeah, it was so simple to figure that out. For me, especially because I have chronic health conditions, in truth, Mark does too, so we knew that having access to excellent health care was really important to us. And in our current environment, at least we do have access. We can buy Obamacare insurance as people without jobs, but there's no certainty of how much that's going to cost, whether they're going to keep the tax credits in place that keep the premiums relatively affordable. There's just so much uncertainty there that I think that was honestly the single biggest factor for me in deciding what was enough is feeling like we had a really, really big slush fund. So what we did is, you know, we looked at our budget. And one thing I will say that I think is a common mistake people make, particularly in retirement planning, is they look at what they're spending now and they don't think about what they're spending or what they would like to spend in retirement. They assume it will be the same. Well, you have all this new free time in retirement to do things like travel or go to concerts or whatever it is that is your thing to spend money on. You've got more time for that now. And so it makes sense that you will spend more on that. And folks who say, oh, you're going to spend less in retirement or you'll spend the same, I just think that's really short-sighted. So uh, it's looking at what you would ultimately like to be spending. And then for me, the conventional wisdom in both retirement and early retirement, is that you need to save about 25 times your annual spending, and then you have enough. Um, I said that was not enough. Uh, that that assumes that healthcare is going to keep pace with inflation rather than increase faster than inflation as it's doing. It assumes that climate change is not going to have an impact on our expenses, which I don't believe for a second. I think climate change is going to have a ton of effects that affect all aspects of our economy. So it was saying, okay, a 4% withdrawal rate, which is 25 times your spending, is the norm, I want to go a lot more than that. So in the end, we saved about 36 times our annual spending to feel comfortable with reti retirement. And that was so that we could get closer to uh, about 2% withdrawal, 2.5% uh, withdrawal from our accounts every year. For those who aren't familiar with this math, don't worry about it. It's just to say <laughs> we assumed a way more conservative rate of taking money out of our investments so that we'd have essentially a 100% chance of never running out of money. I think when you're facing down something like retirement, the enough question is really complicated by that because it if it's, it's all about not just how much do you need to be able to survive comfortably, but what are the markets going to do? What will a long-term recession do to what you've saved? And so the best way to have more comfort with that is just to oversave a little bit. At the same time, I didn't want to just say, okay, let's keep saving forever. It's very easy to have that view of let's be conservative and tr have that translate into let's just keep working and saving until we die. And that's what a lot of financial advisors will tell you. They'll say you need to be earning money forever. But we looked at it from the other side too of like, okay, every year that we're in the job market, we're taking money that someone else could be earning. And that was a really important thing to help us say, okay, this is enough, is not just what is it that I need to feel comfortable, but what am I costing others? And 
trying to balance the two was really how I got to the good place of like, okay, this is this is the number. This is when we're good. We exceeded it by just a little bit. But then we said, okay, now we want to get out of this so that it frees up that money to help others have a better life and not just hoard it for ourselves. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. And I'm glad that you talked about healthcare too, because I feel like when I start doing sort of some of this number crunching, it's, you know, the like agonized screaming emoji with like the hands on the face. Like that's (laughs) sort of how I feel. Like I'm like, but healthcare though, right? (laughs) Like then I just, I'm like doing it right now. I'm like dragging my hands down my face. That's where I feel like all of my sort of like potential best laid plans like blow up. I don't have any magic good answers for that. Healthcare is a mess. I mean, it's better than it was pre-Obama, whatever your politics are, I hope you can recognize that the fact that people can buy insurance outside of work is a positive thing that didn't used to be true. And so uh, it's better than it otherwise would have been, but it is still scary. It just is. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to ask you um, like an sort of even more kind of drill down nitty gritty question about um, what you just shared before, because I I, I understand what you're saying. And I, I think that potentially there are some listeners who whose eyes like glossed over when you yep. were like 4%, 2% withdrawal, <laughs> like de- right back. In. So I guess maybe like backing up a little bit, I, I don't know if like investing 101 is the right thing, but you know, so you are investing money, right? Like there's that stage where you're like accumulating wealth. And then once you are retired, right? Or like maybe working part-time or, you know, whatever kind of the working less or work optional winds up looking like, then will you kind of talk about like the what happens then or some like Mm -hmm. just some more of an overview on that for folks? For sure. So typically thinking about either retiring early or going to something like semi-retirement, which might be leaving what feels like a quote unquote career and moving to part-time work or seasonal work or something that aligns to your passions or maybe it's working for yourself but trying to take some of the pressure off to have to make a whole bunch of money as an entrepreneur um, what you know whatever kind of path you're looking for you have phases so you have what I call the accumulation phase where you're saving and investing to fund the next phase and then you have a lot of you know money bros will call it the decumulation phase. I think that's very boring. I I think of it as really the work optional phase, where then you're shifting from saving to spending what you've worked to save. And your goal is to save enough that you're always going to have money there and that it's going to increase by inflation because stuff that costs one amount now in 10 years is going to count, is going to cost a lot more. Usually things double in price about every 20 years. So you have to account for that. And so that's why very smart economists have tried to look at how much it is that you can safely take out of your savings and investments each year and be pretty sure that you're not going to run out of money. And the number that's typically thrown around there is 4%, that if you start out withdrawing 4% of everything you've saved, that you will likely still have money at the end of your life. There are those, though, that argue that that is too aggressive an assumption that looks only at the past. It doesn't look at climate change or growing income and wealth inequality or the fact that the U.S. is taking measures right now that might reduce our future productivity by, for example, blocking immigration when immigrants are really important to keep the economy growing, stuff like that. And so you can have a safer plan by saving more so that you can withdraw less, so that maybe you're only withdrawing 3.5% or 3% at the start and then adjusting that by inflation each year. And so that's really the idea. Um, But there are a million different variations on it, and you can find other ways to help support your lifestyle that aren't necessarily 
all investment based. Like for example, some people will, let's say you buy one home to live in, house, condo, whatever it is, and then you later move. And maybe instead of selling the first one, you rent it out. And some folks will have rental income that comes that way. So there are different ways to do it. The goal is just simply to have enough saved that you can have enough that you're able to either earn off that investment or sell some of that investment to cover your expenses in retirement or semi-retirement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like this kind of stuff too, it's like really helpful to have the reminder that, you know, it, sure, there's a lot to learn. And the more you dig, like, I guess it could get more complex, but that I, something that I had to tell myself when I was first starting out with this, because, you know, my parents were never really like kind of financially savvy and made a bunch of mistakes and never, you know, kind of gave me a financial education, right? I guess I would say. And, you know, once I started becoming interested in this, I really had this like incorrect story belief, you know, that this is too complicated for me, right? Like this is something that I have to like hire the like 50-year-old white man in like the financial office, right? To like help me do this because this is way too complicated for me to learn on my own. And I just had to keep telling myself like, nope, I'm smart. This information's there. It's like not as complicated as people want me to think that it is. And that has proved to be really helpful, especially at the beginning when I felt completely overwhelmed is just to continue to remind myself that like exactly as you just laid out, like we don't have to start out knowing these things like all of this information is available to be learned. Absolutely. And honestly, the amount that you truly need to know is actually pretty small relative Mm -hmm. to the info out there. It's helpful to understand how compound interest works, that inflation is a thing, you know, that things get a little bit more expensive every year and that that compounds over time. Those are really important things to know. But once you know that stuff and you understand a few basics of investing, you understand, you know, if if you're interested in something like buying a home or renting a home out, uh, what sometimes people will call house hacking, knowing some basics of that is important. You know, like if if you rent out a place, you're going to have to pay income tax on that rental income. That's good to factor in. But beyond that, there really isn't a ton that you actually need to know. It's helpful to know that annuities are questionable. It's helpful to know that you shouldn't buy whole life or universal life insurance. (laughs) But like these are all things that you can educate yourself on really, really quickly. In the book, I say, you know, here's everything you need to know and nothing that you don't because I feel Mm -hmm. really strongly about that. I think if you start to go down that rabbit hole of, okay, I want to learn about money, it's very easy to all of a sudden run into stuff where you're like, oh my gosh, this is so overwhelming. I can never learn this. And then you just shut down. Or I think for women in particular, we, a lot of us carry around this narrative of I'm bad at money, or I don't know a lot about finance. And some of that is really baked into society. We have created a system in which women are charged with and allowed to make what I would call the small finance or low finance decisions. You know, women make a vast majority of household purchasing decisions, things like groceries and what you're going to buy at Target or the drugstore, things for kids, stuff like that. But men have been the ones who've traditionally been talked to about high finance, again, in air quotes, of the things like investing or taking out a mortgage, doing the things that feel like you need to learn a bit more. And that's not by accident. I mean, that is definitely a sign and symptom of a patriarchal financial system. And I think a lot of women who are married to men have had the experience of talking to a financial advisor or talking to a mortgage loan officer or an insurance agent or something and to have that person address the man. Yep. And mm-hmm. like that still happens to this day. I, I literally wrote a money, a book <laughs> about money and I have had people say, okay, well, why don't we get your husband on the phone and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I had the same thing happen to me um, when my former spouse and I were buying a house. And I am much more knowledgeable about this kind of stuff and definitely have personal finance as a hobby and, you know, then like compared to him. And it was just so, I mean, interesting is like the neutral word that I'll use, right? Like, of course, like very like enraging, sure. Like how people throughout that process were like, even in like small, subtle ways, but like, like default to like asking him stuff, especially because he earned more money than me too. And that like, oh, well, because that's the case, his earning is higher. That must mean that he like knows more about this type of stuff. And it was, yeah, like low key infuriating to be like, nope, that's actually not the case. <laughs> I think that's more than low key infuriating. That is is high key. That's high key infuriating. You're correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and so if you already have this idea of like, oh, I don't understand all this financial stuff or it feels really hard to learn about it. And then these other things happen, like people say, oh, I want to talk to the man and you're not equipped to make this decision, it just reinforces that story we tell ourselves, which is I'm not good at this or I can't do this. And that's just not true. That is a lie that you have been told and socialized to believe from the beginning by design. And so Mm -hmm. simply changing that narrative for yourself and saying, I can be good at money or I I am going to learn the things I need to know or I am good at this and I'm just fighting against a system that doesn't want me to feel that way. I think changing that for yourself is hugely powerful and is something that I hope everyone listening can start to do if you're not already there because, you know, the system doesn't want us to have this power. And so the most powerful thing, the most radical thing we can do as women is claim our financial power. Mm, Yes, I love that. Okay, so you mentioned that (laughs) what we actually need to know is like, uh, like not as much right as we would think that it is. So you mentioned like, hey, Google inflation and compound interest. What are sort of the couple of things if someone's like walking away from this conversation that you're like, you know what, the most useful things to, you know, get a little education on are like XYZ? I think the you know, the, those two things, compound interest and inflation, are good. Although compound interest, you don't even have to look up. The basic idea is if you're getting 3% interest on something, it's not that it's going to add 3% each year. It's going to multiply. And so stuff really adds up. But that goes also for your earnings. So if you can earn a consistent raise each year, that stuff multiplies quickly over time. So even if you're not earning a lot now, if you're in a field that gives you potential for raises, know that that will add up quickly, you know, more quickly than than you could imagine simply by compounding. It's also true for your debt, that debt grows in a more exponential way. And so those are important things to use the compounding in your favor by saving and by earning more instead of having it work against you like with debt. But the other things are that small decisions made consistently are much more powerful than big decisions made once. Uh, so if you can automate something so that those small decisions happen in the background and you're saving a little bit with each paycheck or investing a little bit with each paycheck, that's huge. The other thing too, and I think this is the biggest barrier, honestly, for all people, but especially for women with investing, is we imagine that in order to be able to invest, we have to be able to beat the markets. We have to have some knowledge of which stocks are going to be winners, or we have to know something that we are not actually equipped to know about whatever it is so that we can do better than the markets. The most important thing to know is that you never have to do that. If you can simply match the markets, you will grow your money over time because the markets consistently, historically, always do better than inflation. In a given year, they might not. In a given three-year period, they might not. But long-term, over every 10-year period, Investing in stock markets always makes you money. And so just looking at things like there's there's a whole category of investment called index funds where the goal is not to pick which stocks are going to win. It's simply to buy all the stocks. So, for example, there is 
an index called the Dow Jones Industrial Average that probably everyone has heard of. That's not actually a stock exchange. That is a grouping of stocks that are used as a metric to kind of gauge the health of the overall stock market. But you can buy a fund that is the Dow Jones Industrial Average or is is all of the funds all of the stocks that are included in that average are then in that fund, in the percentage that they're weighted in the average. So if you invest in it, you'll just simply be matching the returns that the Dow get. Similarly, a a big favorite of the FIRE community is the S&P 500, which is a different selection of 500 of the biggest stocks. And if you just buy that index fund, you'll first be buying funds with very, very low fees, which is really, really good index Funds in general have much lower fees than do non-index mutual funds, mutual funds that are managed by a person where a person is making buying and selling decisions and you have to pay that person. You have to pay them a lot of money and that erodes what you're going to earn from it. But the index funds are low fee and so you're just simply trying to do as well as the markets are doing and that – I know I went on (laughs) on about this at length, but I just feel really strongly about that, that that's something where I think we feel like we have to know this magical stuff and you don't. Just try to match the markets. Just try to get those low fee funds and it's, it's very, very simple. And then you don't need to really learn anything else about investing to do it successfully. Mm-hmm. Okay, so digging into the index funds a little bit for someone maybe who hasn't heard that term before. And the question is, okay, if I'm going to invest in index funds, like where do I do that? Is that something that I do like within my 401k? Is that something that I have to do separately? Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So you can do that in your 401k if you have one, if your employer offers that as a fund option. The huge bummer about 401ks is that you don't get to choose the institution that it's with. And so some institutions are pretty good and have good low fee offerings and index fund offerings, and others are terrible and they only offer really high fee funds. When you're looking at the choices that you have within your 401k, because the 401k is really just a bucket, and then it holds the investments that you choose for it. And you can often choose bond funds, stock funds, some combo. Sometimes they'll have things called target date funds, where the idea is that they're shifting the allocation over time so that as you get closer to that target date, that it's going to start paying you money because that's when you hit retirement. Uh, the thing that you're looking for with any of those choices is what are the fees, honestly. That, that is the single biggest thing because even a fund that does gangbusters returns, if it has high fees, that's going to be subtracted from every single return you ever get. So you can choose index funds potentially within your 401k if you have those choices. Uh, often you can spot index funds because they'll have the number 500 in them. That usually means it's an index fund for the S&P 500. Uh, But if you don't have that option or you're looking to save above and beyond what you can save at your workplace plan, you can go to any brokerage just about. So popular ones are Vanguard, Fidelity, T. Rowe Price, uh, really a whole bunch of them. Some are are bad. It's good to just kind of Google best brokerage or most consumer-friendly brokerage before you, you make a choice. But if you sign up for an account with one of them, then you can set up automatic investing of $25, $50, $100 a month, and then you can choose the index funds that you want. And some have their own, uh, like Vanguard has their own index funds. They actually originated index funds. Fidelity has their own, but others will let you buy those Vanguard funds or those Fidelity funds through their brokerage. And those are often called uh, exchange traded funds, ETFs. Um, You don't need to get into all the particulars of that, but typically just look for the word index and that will guide you in the right decision. And then you should choose on the basis of the fees they're charging and the minimum to start getting 
into investing. If they're saying the only way to start is with a $5,000 initial investment, obviously that's not going to work for everybody. And so find one that works for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned fees a bunch of times, and which I'm glad because obviously that's really important. Will you share like maybe numerically, like when you say high fees, like percentage wise, like what does that look like? Like what should people look for? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's one that even people who know fees are important often get tripped up on because the fees we're talking about sound small. A fund might say, okay, this mutual fund has an expense ratio. They'll often call it an expense ratio. Sometimes they may call it fees. They might call it loads. There are all these different ways they can code it. But you're looking for a small percent listed somewhere in the fund materials. And 1% 1% sounds small, right? That that sounds like not that big a deal. Uh, some will charge maybe more than that, 1.5%. But if you look at the erosion of your gains that that small a fee will make over time, I want to try to find where I have the chart about this in the book. Um, it's huge. And so really what you're looking for is a fee of a quarter of 1% or less preferably less. Anything over that, and you know that they're spending a lot of your gains paying people instead of giving you money that you should be earning. And so those are, that. that's really where I would start is quarter percent or less, all good, anything more than that, and start to ask very serious questions. If a financial advisor ever gives you advice to invest in funds over a half percent, seriously question that person's ethics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's like even just like random Googling that I've done that people can do of like, you know, if let's say the fee is 1% or 1.5%, like what does that look like over a 20, 30, 40 year period? And like that people obviously have like run the numbers. And it was astonishing to me to see the difference in accumulated wealth for like, uh, you know, a percentage or, you know, like a quarter percent, like a quarter of a percent. Yeah. So I found the place in the book. If, if you have the book, it's on pages 61 and 62. But nerd wallet, which is a great resource. They have tons of good info up and are, I just I, I recommend them all the time. They did an analysis. If you have just 1% management fees, if you're invested for 10 years, and if you start with a $25,000 investment and add $10,000 a year, so that may or may not be doable for you. So just this is to give you a sense of where we're starting. But if you start with that, over 10 years, you're going to lose $11,000 to fees. Over 20 years with those amounts, you'll lose $61,000 to fees. Over 30 years, it's $210,000. And over 40 years, if you work a full-length career, it's $592,000. And that's 25% of what you would have have made. Because again, those fees are going to compound over time too. So 1% doesn't sound like a lot, but it's actually a ton. Try to get as low as you can. Under a quarter percent is really ideal. Yeah, that's so wild. Oh, okay. So the next question, like sort of the next like logical progression question that I was going to ask you is, you know, when you were on this path of wealth accumulation and, you know, wanting to pursue early retirement, like how you decided where to invest. But like maybe I'm more interested in something that you said before about like wanting to be aware of what you're investing in, right? Not like investments equal evil or whatever you said earlier in the conversation. I'm Mm -hmm. interested in sort of how you think about actually like, okay, you have this money to invest. You know that you want something that's going to, you know, be low fee. And, you know, so maybe there's like some of that criteria, but then for you personally, Personally, sort of how do you reckon with where to park that money based on not just like what's going to return income for you, right? What's going to help it grow, but also is going to align with your values. 
Yeah, this is a tougher question than I believe it should be because until very recently, there haven't really been good options. Several brokerages did offer so-called socially responsible funds. But if you actually looked at what was in those funds, it still often included oil companies, tobacco companies. It was always to me like, who are you calling (laughs) socially irresponsible if you're letting all these folks in? And so we at the beginning, I I will just say, we kind of held our nose and said, we're going to invest in index funds knowing that there are bad guys in here. I didn't totally love that decision, but I also said, you know, the, the other option is that I get forced out of work, not on my own terms, by my disability at some point, and I would rather that not happen. So I'm going to invest. But as I started to grow a bit of a platform, and then particularly after the Parkland shooting in Florida, uh, BlackRock, which is uh, an investment company that they don't really do a lot to face consumers, but they have a lot of 401k things and, and they work with workplaces, that kind of stuff, institutional investing. They announced that they were going to create new funds that excluded guns from them. And that was really an aha moment for me of, okay, if BlackRock, who holds trillions of dollars in assets for people, can do this, then where we have our money, Vanguard, which is the largest holder of index funds in the world, uh, they could certainly do something similar. And so I started a petition on change.org and we got almost 100,000 signatures. And Vanguard responded to me because I separately sent them a note and said like, hey, I'm a big investor with you. You should probably listen to this. And they said, oh, you know, we don't really take a a social activism approach. This feels like activism. That's not our thing. We're not going to do anything. But then a few months later, they announced a, a group of new funds that are called ESG funds, which is like the industry lingo that means environmental, social, and governance. And so they're funds that exclude companies that have bad environmental records, that have bad social records, whether it's abusing workers or create, you know, creating products that are bad for society, like guns and tobacco, and then governance of companies that are. Uh, interfering in other governments elsewhere in the world. Uh, And those are all excluded. So I'm not going to take credit for that, but I do not think the timing was coincidental. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so now we're in the process and, and we're doing this over the course of multiple years because when you sell shares of an investment, you have to pay capital gains on those shares. And so if you sold a whole bunch of shares at once, you would have a big, big tax bill and it might mess up things like how much your healthcare premiums are, which is all important to consider. So we're doing it slowly year by year, but we're shifting our assets from traditional index funds into these ESG funds. And I'm so, so glad to finally have that option because they actually have low fees because they are index funds. They have high returns because they're index funds. Unlike a lot of the other socially responsible funds out there that have extremely high fees and low, low returns where it's almost better to just keep your money in a savings account. Mm -hmm. Um, So the options are getting better. I think that we're going to keep seeing that happening more. BlackRock just announced that they're going to do some funds that really focus on climate change and that they're going to divest from the worst climate offenders. I hope that that is also you know, pushing the whole industry in that direction and that we'll start to see more action there. I, I think stakeholder activism is definitely something that's growing. And so I'm really uh, optimistic about the options we're going to have in the next few years. Yeah, that's awesome. I did not know about the ESG fund, so I'm appreciative of that. I'm like, okay, well, that's something for me to look into as soon as we're done with this conversation. But yeah, <laughs> you know, so this sort of like larger umbrella of things that I know are important to you is this idea of using your financial security for good. So outside of what you have already shared, is there anything else along those lines that you wanted to speak to about kind of what that means to you or what that looks like in your real life right now? 
Yeah. I mean, I think once you hit a point of financial security, which just means that you know if you lose your job, you'd be okay. You you wouldn't have to scramble to take the very next thing you could find or you wouldn't have to panic and move in with relatives or something. Like once you're at a point where you know you are secure and you can weather some hardship – I think that is the perfect opportunity to look at how you can help others. And so, for example, at work, I definitely, you know, I, I think I was I was very socialized. I'm I'm young Gen X, some would say Xennial, uh, but I was definitely growing up at a time when women were really discriminated against. There weren't that many opportunities for girls and women. And so I believed that if some other woman got an opportunity, that was an opportunity I couldn't get. And it took me a lot of years to shed that myth and to stop believing that. But for years in my career, I operated under that belief without consciously thinking it. But so I saw other women as competition, and I'm not proud of that. uh, But I think it's really important to reckon with that fact. But as I got to be more financially secure, I started to see, oh, we're all actually in this together. This is a riding, rising tide lifts all boats situation. And the more that we can support one another or focus on diversity and hiring, diversity and promotion, the better. And so I used my financial security. Once I knew I'd be okay if I got fired, I started being the squeaky wheel on this and saying, we need to hire more women of color. We need to hire more people of color generally. We need to hire more people with disabilities. We need to promote this person. We need to give this person that opportunity, which was a big mindset shift for me because I had always in the past been looking out for myself and what opportunities can I get? How can I get the most money at work, that stuff? But having security freed me up to think beyond myself and to advocate for others. And I genuinely believe that if everyone who had financial security started doing that, we could dramatically change our work culture in this mm-hmm. com- in this country. And that's the thing that ultimately I hope is the legacy of the FIRE movement, that I know we're not going to be able to get everyone to retire early. We just aren't there as a society. We don't create equal opportunity for people to save and invest and to earn enough, frankly, to even get by to be able to think about investing. But if everyone who has financial security can push for better conditions at work, that will help everyone. That will give us better pay, better leave policies, things that are more family-friendly, more women-friendly, more friendly to people with disabilities. I mean, nothing but good can come from from that. But it also means having the privilege of, of not having to shop solely based on price. Once you have enough financial cushion, you can stop buying the very cheapest thing and you can say, what is the most ethically produced thing? Or what is the thing that does the least harm to the people who made it or environmentally or isn't going to end up in a landfill anytime soon? Like affording to pay more for stuff is a huge privilege, but it's something that you can start to think about once you become financially secure. I mean, those are to me two of the biggest examples. Uh, It also, you know, in our case has meant we were able to buy a rental property that wasn't part of our financial plan, but we had a relative who is in need. And we said, okay, we can, we can make this happen. We can give you an affordable place to live that also acts as an investment for us, not a perfect optimized one, uh, but one that, that is mutually beneficial over the long term. And, and having the freedom to do that and to help someone out, I think is something that's super gratifying, though every financial advisor would tell you not to do that. They'd say, don't get into a financial arrangement with someone in the family. And we said, yeah, we're going to do it anyway, because what good is our money for if we can't use it to help the people we love? Um, so yeah, I, th- I think that's a very big financial decision that we were able to make because of financial security. But if it comes down to, I'm not going to support this company because of their policies. I'm not going to eat at this restaurant because they are racist or against LGBT people. 
you know, those are choices you can make once you have even just a little bit of wiggle room in your budget. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you speaking to that, that like the more financial security you have, and that doesn't have to necessarily look like complete financial independence, but obviously from a more secure place, like with a bigger safety net, however we define that, that you are able to like take more risks essentially, right? That like it is not safe for everyone to like speak up at work or to do these kind of things. Like if, and sort of that you're talking about sort of the, the privileges that come with that. I appreciate that point. Yeah. And and I think that is something that we should all be interrogating. If you have privilege in some way, thinking about once you get to a point where you can afford to take a little bit of a financial risk, how can you help share the wealth, you know, to use a trite expression, but that's really what we're talking about. And so I'm a white woman. I didn't grow up with a wealthy background by any means. Uh, I, I grew up with a single parent on social assistance, but I was able to get to a place where I earned a fair amount. I had a lot of respect in my career. And so thinking about who around me doesn't have that same privilege, how can I help share some of that? I mean, that I think is something we can all do in our own ways, looking at whatever it is that your privilege is. One of the things that I'm interested in that I think is um, maybe not exclusively unique to you, but as someone who is like a big voice in the personal finance space, your decision not to share your specific money numbers, you know, whether that's earnings or savings rate percentages, like on your blog, in the book. Can you talk about your decision there? Yeah, that is the decision that I made right from the beginning of blogging. And when I first made the decision, I wasn't thinking that any of this stuff was going to happen. I didn't imagine that I would be in news stories. I didn't imagine I'd be writing a book. I didn't imagine any podcast host would ever want to have me on. You know, it was it was simply saying, you know, I plan to at some point put my name on this. I started blogging anonymously, but I knew once we retired that my name would be attached to it. And I didn't want you to be able to Google me and figure out how much money I had. Simply from a, a privacy perspective, you can't ever take that back. So I didn't want that to be out there in any form. And that decision has really been a good one because as I have started to see my name in news or, you know, do different things that are more public – some weird stuff has happened and some strange people have crawled out of the woodwork. And so I feel really, really happy that specific numbers aren't out there. But I think the bigger thing is when you see numbers, I, I think it's so valuable to share certain things. And I'm really glad that some people will share what they earn. I think pay transparency in the workplace is so, so important. But if you're talking about like your own financial journey and how much you have saved, People can get very distracted by that and all of a sudden think, oh, this doesn't apply to me because I earn more than this. I earn less than this. I, you know, whatever. Something about my circumstances is different. And I really wanted to be able to talk about the principles without that. And I also think we have a society that is so focused on comparison. You know, you see someone on Instagram and they look beautiful and you think, oh, I suck because I don't look like that. I didn't want my numbers to spur anyone to get into that comparison game or to feel ashamed or, uh, you know, that was really the biggest thing is I didn't want to feed into anyone's shame of I don't have this amount and so therefore I'm not doing well or I can't save at this high a rate. A big thing in the FIRE movement is what I call savings rate porn. Uh, pe <laughs> people like to say like, here's how much of my income I'm saving. There was a time when I did share that number, but I came to regret that and I stopped because you know, it's it's a lot easier to save money when you earn more money. And I, 
I think that a lot of the people who were talking savings rate weren't sharing what they were earning. And so if all you see is so-and-so is saving 70% of their income, you think like, holy shit, I am a failure, when maybe they're earning three or $400,000 a year. And <laughs> saving that percent is actually pretty easy uh, relative to someone earning $50,000 a year where saving 10% is amazing. And so it's it because I wasn't giving the full context of everything, I didn't want to feed into that sort of porn and shame machine that I think is ultimately a pretty negative force. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this a lot as the larger topic of sort of how we draw our own individual boundaries around honesty and privacy, like not even as much from a financial perspective, but as someone who like shares a lot of their personal life online, right, and has done so. I've done that basically my entire adult life and sort of figuring out for me what I am and am not comfortable talking about. And just because you share some stuff doesn't mean that people like are entitled to access to things that you don't want to share, right, and that it's up to each individual person to decide sort of what that balance looks like, whether it's, you know, sharing income numbers on like a personal finance blog or how much of their life they want to share on their personal Instagram account or any of these types of things. And so I'm always just, yeah, like curious about how other people start to make those decisions for themselves. And it was refreshing to see like what your policy was as far as that. Yeah. And I I will urge folks who do blog about money or share it in some way. I think there's so much value to that. It is so important that we break down the taboo of talking about money because we've talked just a, a little bit here about all the shame that's involved in it, but it obviously is so much wider reaching than that. And if we want to do things like address the gender pay gap or the racial pay gap or the disability pay gap, we have to be more transparent about some of it. But if for yourself, you choose to share some of your numbers, know that there will be people out there who have good algebra skills who will triangulate all the rest of it. And so if you don't want your full financial picture out there, I would just be really careful about sharing anything, frankly, especially as women, because we are targets for just everything in a way that men often aren't. And so the people I know who share most of their numbers online or on blogs are men. And it makes sense because they're just harassed a lot less. But just make sure that it's a very deliberate and conscious choice and not one you make willy nilly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like sharing with your friends or your coworkers is one thing and that's great, but that's not the internet. Yeah, I agree. It's it's funny. One of the things that I do um, in the Patreon community is I do like an end of month business and money report for one of the tiers and just kind of like inner workings of the business from a perspective of, hey, this is a small business that I'm like growing and thinking about and here's the way I make those decisions. And I decided to include income numbers in that. And I thought about a lot of the same things that you have just spoken about. And I don't know that I would share them forever, but for this period of time, I actually found that it was really helpful to have that out there and to have the conversation. Cause I think it really is easy to be like, oh, this person works for themselves and to then have like all kinds of assumptions on what that looks like, right. Or how they're making it work. And for me, it felt good to have just like more transparency around that, to be able to generate more conversation with the knowledge that maybe that doesn't feel good forever. And I am really grateful for people who have also chosen to share those numbers. And I feel sometimes the like disservice is um, there seems to be a trend that people who are like quite high earners or have high net worth are the ones who are sharing, right? Because maybe they ha- don't have shame attached to it or they do like there just seems to be a lot of what is being shared is, you know, what I would say is definitely more money than I earn. And that can kind of cause those comparison things. And I'm always personally grateful when people who like are in a similar situation to me are willing to talk more openly about it because then that makes all this stuff seem like more approachable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, again, talking about it is great. And 
I think it's totally appropriate for you to share the business stuff with your Patreon community, um, but just so that we're all thinking about it. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah. that. It's it's make sure you understand the risks before you do it because stuff you put on the internet never truly goes away. Yep. No, I love that. And I think like this, like anything else, like there's no right or wrong answer, right? And so just being, I'm just appreciative of people talking about their thought process around it, which, you know, is exactly what you just did. And I love that. Great. So being conscious of time, I feel like there's so many other things that we could talk about. Um, but the last couple things that I definitely wanted to ask you, you've mentioned um, sort of disability economics, not necessarily that phrase, but a couple of different times throughout this conversation. Is that something that you wanted to talk about in a little bit more detail? Yeah. You know, I, I think my big driver for early retirement was knowing that I am unlikely to have full mobility and good quality of life until my 60s when a lot of us put off the things that we want to do. We say, oh, I'll do that in retirement. I, I knew that I didn't have that full clock. Uh, and I think the truth is a lot of people don't. You know, the, the disability rates in the U.S. are really high. It's like one in three people will be disabled permanently or temporarily at some point in their lives. And the rates are higher for women. We know there are so many autoimmune conditions and um, systemic things that women are affected by that men aren't. And so that was always a big driver for me. And I, I think if you know, for example, that you have some health problems in your family or you know that you are already a little bit sick and it could get worse, I I really encourage everyone as much as you can to use that as an incentive to try to save as much as you possibly can because the rules about how much you're able to save it varies by state. But in quite a few states, you're not allowed to save much money if you have to go on disability uh programs. Also, a lot of folks, it takes years and years to get on social security disability. And it's it's just a really, really broken system. And that's something that I am trying to use some of my energy to fight against, uh, to advocate for fairer policies so that disabled people are just, you know, allowed to have an emergency fund, like something very basic. Um, but it it is something where if you know that that's likely to be in your future, try to channel that knowledge as much as you can, because future you will be so, so grateful that, that you looked out for mm-hmm. that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the last thing I really wanted to ask you is about the retreat that you created that gathers women together to talk about financial independence. First of all, that sounds like something I immediately need to put on my bucket list to attend. That sounds like a great environment. Um, Can you just share a little bit about kind of like how that retreat came to be and maybe what some of the more common conversation topics or questions are that came up? Yeah. So within the FIRE community, which stands for Financial Independence Retire Early, financial independence is really the important part of it, but a lot of folks tend to focus on the early retirement part. But it has, it, it is a perfect microcosm of the greater society in the sense that a lot of men will talk about things and assume that anything that a man talks about is gender neutral and anything that a woman talks about is niche and is, you know, not a universal topic, not as of interest, is not of interest to everyone, uh, that kind of thing. And I was hearing right after I retired early, you know, certainly a conversation I'd been in for a long time, but I was hearing more and more women say, you know, why can't we talk about caring for aging parents or providing childcare, the decision of whether to quit working or not uh, to take care of a kid uh, and how that impacts my lifetime's my lifetime earnings potential, those were things that people were talking about and were airing frustration that there was no place to talk about them and that they weren't really welcome in some of the mainstream discussion areas. Or if they talked about stuff, they'd get shouted at by guys on Twitter saying, you know, this isn't really for here. Take this somewhere else. And I thought, you know, we need a place to talk about this stuff. It's it's not that 
approaching financial independence is inherently different for women, but the issues that we think about, we often have a much more emotional relationship to money, whether that's innate or something we're socialized to do. And I thought, I have time on my hands. Why not create that space? Because who else is going to do it? And I had event planning skills from my old career. And so the first year, which was 2018, we had one event in Denver. We had about 90 people there. And then last year, I was able to make it a little bit smaller by having two of them. So we had one in Seattle, one in Chicago, and they had about 75 folks each. And we just, you know, really my goal is to create the space for people to connect with one another because I think when you're doing something like trying to save a lot of money or exit the workforce early, that runs counter to what a lot of folks are trying to do. A lot of folks are trying to earn more money so they can spend more money and it's a pretty radical act to take yourself out of that. And so a lot of people doing that on their own have no community around them. They don't have any friends who are doing it. They feel like weirdos or they feel like uh, they are losing friendships because they don't want to go out to eat all the time or do whatever their friends are doing. And so I, I really just wanted to create a space where women could meet others and feel supported and have more friends who are doing this. But we also do other things there. We let people who attend give short presentations on whatever they want. We have a few speakers who do some talks on not the usual stuff that you're going to read on any old blog. And then mostly it's just social time because I think that's the most important ingredient. And so I'm hoping to do several more events this year and next. Uh, I don't have anything definitive yet to announce, unfortunately, but to me, it's been such a magical thing. And I think the magic is not in what I've created. It's simply in bringing people there. It's very much like if you build it, they will come. And then the mm-hmm. people who come are the are the magic. Yeah, I feel that way about the retreats that I host too. Yeah, that's a perfect way to say it. Oh, you have shared so much and been so honest. I'm really grateful. And if you could leave our community, the listeners, with maybe one small call to action, what do you think it would be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? I think it's honestly looking at how you define yourself in money terms and trying to change that so that it's more positive. Even if it's already positive, we all have room to grow on this. So I started out earlier talking about the I am a person who. Ask yourself very honestly, how do you define that right now, particularly around money? And what is a small way you could change that right now? And often it doesn't even mean having to change anything about how we deal with money. It's just about shedding some of that baggage or shedding some of the lies we've been taught about women in particular to say, oh, no, actually, I'm a person who does this, which is better than how I thought about it before. So I think if you can change your own mindset about who you are as a person who deals with money in the world, that itself can be incredibly transformative. Yeah, I love that. I feel like for me, and it wasn't as easy as like lights, like kind of flipping a switch of like, I'm bad with this. I'm good with this. Like an incremental step was like, you know, kind of switching to the identity of like, I'm a person who's like having fun learning more about money, right? Like, which like even sounds silly maybe to say out loud, but sort of that like incremental step instead of like, oh, I'm bad with this. This is too complicated for me. I don't understand this. I'm not a good saver, right? Whatever that is. Like I'm someone who's like choosing to pay more attention to this or like learning about this. And that was really helpful for me. Oh, I don't think that's silly at all. I think that is perfect. I think if everybody would go to that model, we would live in a very different world of just, yeah, accepting that it's a learning process, not that it's something you're either good at or bad at, uh, is huge. I, I love that so much. I'm a person who enjoys learning more about this. Can, let's just all say that. Let's put that on t-shirts. <laughs> what is the best place for people to find you and say hi? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks, a favorite place for people to get the book, which everybody should get? It was so freaking helpful. 
Um, thank you for that. Uh, the best place to find everything that I'm doing is at my blog, OurNextLife.com. That has a full rundown of our journey to early retirement and all the stuff I've learned since then. Uh, but it also has links to my social. So I'm primarily active on Twitter and Instagram, and that's at our underscore next life. I hate that underscore, but it's in there. <laughs> and uh, you can also go to thefairersense.com, which is my podcast that I do with Kara Perez, who was on a few months ago. And we are also on Twitter and Instagram at fairersense, and that's C-E-N-T-S. Uh, but yeah, on Our Next Life, you can get links to that, to all the social, to my event, Sense Positive, to the book, uh, all, all the things. It's all there. I will put all of those links in the show notes for everyone. Tanya, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he just makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his wonderful sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Hello. So in the spirit of this being Money Month here at Real Talk Radio, we are going to do an honest round of money-related rapid-fire questions that you were brave enough to sign up for, which I appreciate. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So we're just going to dive right in. The first question, tell us how much debt you have. Um, so our profile in that area is is pretty basic. Um, we have a house mortgage and um, I live in the greater Chicagoland area. So the market's probably higher than other areas of the country, but um, our current mortgage debt's about $300,000. And then we have two cars where we have a little bit of a, a low interest car loan. Um, I think collectively between my car and my husband's, it's about $30,000. Yeah, when I co-owned the house with Paul, that was my first time having a mortgage. You know, I had always rented before, and it was it was just like such a funny. It felt like monopoly money. Like even when you say that, like three hundred thousand dollars, I'm like, what? What? What is that? Like it just like I remember like signing the documents and being like, this feels fake. Yeah, oh, yeah. Man. It's such we a funny actually. Thing. Um, added on to our house about nine years ago. And so like in retrospect, if we didn't add on to our house, maybe our mortgage would be paid off, but um, we, we just needed the space. So here we are. Yeah. There's so much stuff that I, I mean, about money in general that I wish that I had been like taught earlier, but when kind of we went into the mortgage process too, we wound up doing a 30 year mortgage at the beginning. And then like pretty quickly within like a few years, refinancing to a 15 year and being like, oh my God, like why didn't anyone tell us to do this? We could have saved so much in interest and just like all these little things of you, you kind of learn as you go. Right. Right. Um, what is your current income source and how much do you earn per year? Yeah. So, um, I, I work full time. I'm in, um, the finance industry and my husband also works full time and he's in finance too. So I make, um, $220,000 a year and my husband makes, uh, about 170 a year. So I'm also, um, you know, I've been in this arena for over 20 years. So I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm far down the career path, <laughs> but, uh, we've had some fluctuations in our salaries um, over the last couple of years. Um, I was I was going pretty hard in my uh, a job or two ago, decided to take a step back and I, I took a major pay cut, kind of half my salary 
went back kind of to corporate uh, almost two years ago, started back in a part-time format in more of a project manager role. Uh, I, I stepped forward in the last year or so saying, okay, I'm, I'm ready to kind of get back on. So um, I got a good, uh, pretty big bump in pay within the last year or so, plus more responsibilities. So, <laughs> um, so it's been, it's been kind of interesting to, you know, have different levels of salary over the last couple of years and kind of how, how that, um, makes you feel as well as how does that affect your life? And, um, it's just been, it's been interesting and, um, uh, you know, right, right now I'm on a, I'm on a good path, but, you know, sustainability in terms of work-life balance, you know, in another couple of years, I might not feel the same way. So mm-hmm. we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I really phases. appreciate the the context too. When you said like, I've been doing this for 20 years. I think sometimes like numbers are, I think like it's important to have honesty around numbers. It's like, it's helpful for people to get an idea, right. Of this kind of stuff. Yeah. And also like context is so important. I'm always interested in like sort of the why behind things. Like you said, okay, making a change, taking a step back, getting a pay cut, or potentially it's changing careers or moving to somewhere where like the expenses are lower, but you're getting paid less. There's just like, so many factors that go into that kind of stuff. And also like longevity and experience, right? Like obviously I've been doing this podcast and this work, you know, for over four years, but doing it like full time for only a year. And, you know, to hear you say like, I've been in this kind of industry for 20 years, that's a huge difference. Right. And so it's just, I I appreciate um, not just that you're being honest about it, but also that you're sharing a bit of the context. Right. Um, yeah. So kind of the other like number piece of it, um, what does your savings situation look like? So since we've been working for 20 plus years, we've, we've been pretty diligent saving like um, in our like company 401ks and with matches and things like that. And probably collectively between my husband and I were, we're um, approaching a million dollars on kind of like uh, money that's accessible today. We have a savings account that we haven't invested um, and we should mo- be moving this money, but we have like a hundred thousand dollars in the bank right now. Um, and then we have an E-Trade account that's, um, maybe about 60 or $75,000. Uh, and then we have 529 plans for our kids to save for college. So, um, I would say, you know, one of the things I'm really interested in the money month is we, we have a good level of income coming in, but, um, in all honesty, we just don't have time to manage it. So um, this money kind of sits there and, and we just haven't been able to allocate time um, between, you know, working full time and having kids and everything else in our life. And it's, it, it's a, that's, you know, one of my the things on my list for 2020 is we we have to make this, um, you know, our savings and our investments work for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and that was one of the questions I was going to ask you later on, like when it comes to money or your personal finances, what's one thing that you'd love to learn more about? And it sounds like maybe you just answered that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I have a couple more things to add on to that when we get there, but um, yeah. that that's really when I, when I look back, I'm, you know, we work so hard and, um, we, we do get to enjoy that from time to time with like vacations or just buying a nice thing every once in a while. But I really want to translate that more into free time and quality of life sooner rather than later, you know, the, the golden age of 65. So right. that's, yeah. Will you talk a little bit about, um, where, if this is applicable that you've had financial support, like whether from family or, uh, you know, maybe it's like your spouse or an inheritance or like where support has come in for you? Um, no, uh, 
<clears throat> neither my husband nor I had any, you know, launching money, mm-hmm. I would say, from our families. My parents did contribute a bit to my college. I don't think my husband had much contribution from his family. So, you know, we were pretty average Midwestern kids growing up. And I, I know my parents worked hard to get us to a better place than where where they were and, and, and kind of the same thing on my husband's side. So I, I'd say we definitely both came from pretty modest um, backgrounds. Yeah. What does budgeting look like for your family? We don't really budget. Uh, you know, I, I would say our expenses are pretty static from year to year. Um, so we kind of know what to expect in terms of, you know, our mortgages and car loans and health insurance and, and things like that. So we know we can kind of manage within that. When it comes to like making larger purchases, you know, there's a convert, like we bought a couch a couple weeks ago. So okay, let's do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, we can we can work it in the cash flow for this month. So um, I would say I would love I would love to like have a little bit more visibility um, or clarity on, on how we're spending our money. There's so many tools you can use for that, but I, I just haven't like gotten my husband over the hump in terms of like using like you need a budget or there's so many different mm-hmm. tools out there. And uh, I think we could gain a lot of insights from that, but we just haven't done that. So, Yeah. Well, I mean, you're bringing up something that I always enjoy talking about and we won't go into because we obviously don't have time for it. But you know, it's one thing when you are just like managing your own money and making all of these decisions on your own. But then when there's like a partner, when there's kids, when like the more people get involved, right? Like you said, like getting the partner over the hump of doing this or like having the time to do it and figuring out like what those kind of conversations look like, or that's always of interest to me, how people like manage things with other people. Yeah. Yeah. So conversations will continue. (laughs) (laughs) So last question, circling back, um, what's one thing that you would love to learn more about, or it can be more than one thing when it comes to money? Yeah, I I think it's just really coming up with more of a game plan for investing and uh, finding some good resources on that. Um, So that would be one element. And then the other element is really digging in and like figuring out when can we retire, you know, setting a goal. Right now, we just, you know, it's it's so far off into the future. It feels like uh, we just haven't like talked about true numbers. Like, can it be 55? Could it be 60? So that's that's something I think we just need to put our energy into um, developing a number because um, there's so much, there's so much life to be had at the Mm -hmm. end of the, you know, your, your working life. Um, It it transforms into something different um, at that point. But I, um, I just, I want to have good quality of life when I'm done with my career. Yeah, totally. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you have made a small and powerful reoccurring per episode pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show and paying the guests and all of that. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show. Yeah, I think I think my reasons will echo many of the previous subscribers that you've talked with, but it's the content for sure. Um, love the Friday emails that you've produced in the past. They really are thought worthy and, you know, make me stop and think, which which is great in the busyness of our lives. And it, it, you know, there's no other podcast that I've run into where just some very interesting conversations have been had and and you just, you know, it gives you insight. So I, I find value in that. And you you also have a great value proposition in the way you kind of market and tee up the uh, your your platform. 
platform. So um, kudos to you for, for making it sound very approachable and for um, providing good reasoning um, on, you know, why people should support the podcast. So you've given me pause and I'm happy to support. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I love that. I've never heard it put quite that way before, but yeah, I super appreciate that. Um, did you, I know you said you live in the Chicago area, but I always ask folks if they want to, you know, share where they live and potentially a social media link, if that's something that's fun so people can say hi, but certainly no pressure to do so. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have two Instagrams and I'll, I'll give you uh, probably an Instagram that's a little bit more on the hiatus. Um, I have a little side business where I grow flowers and my Instagram handle for that is at 12 by 12 flowers. So it's actually um, at 12 X 12 flowers. Got it. I love that side business where you grow flowers. <laughs> so yes, fun. I, love I need, it. need a hobby. <laughs> We all need hobbies. So thank you and to everyone listening. If you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want lots of bonus content, plus other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $1 or more per episode. Your support is what allows the show to continue. And it'll be a lot of fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here is a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together.